Hey, Quarium listeners, it's Marty here. We had the pleasure of joining the SGIM 2021 annual meeting virtually last April, and we put together three episodes that we recorded in the weeks after the conference. And we've been talking about the right time to release these and thought, you know, why not do it right before the next SGIM annual meeting in 2022, just to get us psyched to be in person together again after so, so long. So without further ado, here is the first of three episodes from the Core I Am SGIM 2021 recap series. Welcome back to Core I Am. This is Dr. Marty Freed, an academic primary care physician at the Ohio State Wexner Medical Center. And I'm joined today by the dominator of the ventilator, the professor of the presser, the baritone of the prone himself, Dr. Tim Rowe. Welcome back, bud. Oh, wow, Marty. I have really, truly missed your absurdity. And I'm so <laughs> glad to be back on the pod, coming to you guys now as a Palm Crit Fellow at Northwestern University in Chicago, but always a general internist at heart. There you go. So Tim and I, along with several of our Core IM producers, got the chance to virtually participate in the SGIM annual meeting in April of 2021. And we are now excited to highlight some of that really remarkable content. So buckle your seatbelts. Today, Marty and I will be reviewing some of our favorite medical education theme sessions. Yeah, and that was actually incredibly challenging because there was just so much good stuff at SGEM this year. I mean, you could have, and we did, spend all day, every day, in and out of just the med-ed theme sessions. Yeah, I felt, honestly, I felt so fortunate when Trey was like, okay, Tim, we need somebody to cover med-ed. I was like, uh... <laughs> Yep. We're up. <laughs> yeah. So the sessions we're going to highlight today are one, making it stick virtually, applying the cognitive science of learning to everyday teaching. Two, mentoring in the modern era. Three, anti-racism in med ed, concrete actions to further social justice. And four, clinical update in medical education and education scholarship. Right on. All right, Tim. So with that, why don't you get us started with the making it stick virtually talk? Yes, I love this session. It was put on by an all-star lineup from UPMC in Pittsburgh. Doctors Andrew Klein, Rebecca Ortiz-Worthington, Michael Simonson, Andrew Carter, Ollie DeCrube, and Melissa McNeil. All right, so what was the general overview here? What, what did you find compelling? Yeah, I mean, so many of us are already familiar with these concepts, right? Retrieval, interleaving, spaced repetition, all of these being popularized by that 2014 book, Make It Stick, that has just been white hot in med ed these last few years. But the thing that really hit me about this session was that it was sort of a lesson within a lesson. They kept using the strategies throughout their talk and really inspired me to think about how I can incorporate them into my own virtual teaching. The whole experience, Marty, really got me excited again about what I can do to help my learners get the most bang for their buck. And it's not always what you think. So I think that some of the most effective strategies are counterintuitive. Learning that feels hard is actually a lot more effective than learning that feels easy. Learning's a lot deeper and more durable when it's effortful. So again, these pathways, going back, pathways in the brain that are worn deeper and used repetitively over time are easier to follow the next time. So learning that is durable takes work, which is really one of the central tenets of Make It Stick, and also, by the way, one of Danny Kahneman's behavioral economics theories. And that's counterintuitive for me as a teacher, because I feel like I spend a lot of my time trying to help my learners digest new material as easily as possible. Totally, but you really have to trust them on this, Marty. It's worth the sweat. These guys took it a step further. 
they applied the theory to med student security blankets, note-taking. And this was the part that really hit close to home for me. Because while I was listening, I'm just thinking about myself as a med student, the countless hours I spent passively digesting course material, those stacks of dog-eared first aid reviews that are collecting dust in my closet right now, that graveyard of burnt-out highlighters, all of this trying to get crucial information from my working memory to my long-term memory. And I've got to say, I've only gotten worse with our virtual didactics since COVID hit. But it sounds like there's a better way, and, and really it's back to the basics. There are three key details to note about taking notes, though. And the first key detail, which is definitely the most important one, is that handwritten notes are definitely greater than typed notes. This study took 67 Princeton students and asked them to watch five TED Talks, with the caveat that the TED Talks were not over common knowledge things, and students were randomized to take notes by computer or to take notes by pen and pencil. So on the next slide, what you'll see is that when they were tested over the material, the students did better who took longhand notes. But what's interesting is that difference was really statistically pronounced when they were asked questions over conceptual understanding of the data. Meaning both students who wrote notes down and typed could recall maybe some facts about the information that they were asked. But when it came down to cognitively process and cognitively answer questions related to the complex concepts that were asked, far and away, the students who took the handwritten notes had a more robust understanding and a better ability to convey their conceptual understanding of the knowledge. The second element I want to present to you, or the second detail, is that non-verbatim notes are better than verbatim notes likely correlating to what we just mentioned, that when you have to sort of take out words and parse the information in real time, you're forcing your brain to think about and cognitively engage with that material. And the last one I want to mention to you is that notes are more powerful when combined with retrieval. When you take notes and then quiz yourself over the notes and use them as sort of a mechanism to have to recall the information, that's when they become the most useful. So in summary, we really should be encouraging handwritten note-taking in learners' own words, and then using those paraphrased notes to test themselves. Any thoughts about how this might work in a virtual learning environment? Yeah, I can see that being a little bit tricky, because remember, this is all about applying learning theory to the virtual environment, and now we're saying it all comes back to pen and paper. But what I'm going to do now is really encourage whoever's on the Zoom with me to just go ahead and pull out their notebook. And then I'm going to try to build in a few minutes of reflection time at the very end so that they can actually reprocess those key concepts I want them to take home. Yeah, I know that, that sounds small, but actually five to 10 seconds of pauses in noon conference has been shown to lead to increased knowledge retention. Wow. So really spending these precious ending minutes reflecting and processing these learning points is so crucial. Tim, my man, you are a stable genius. <laughs> I, I cannot claim any, uh, any ownership over those uh, ideas, but thanks, Marty. My favorite part, though, of this whole session was this meta point they made at the end about one of the quintessential make-it-stick concepts, interleaving, and, and how we're doing it every day on rounds without even thinking about it. It absolutely blew my mind. Everything in life and in medicine is interleaved. Rounds is an interleaved exercise of learning um, every time you see a different patient with a different diagnosis. I think the trick for me with spacing, to be honest, when I'm, I'm running rounds, is that I don't tell you everything I know about atrial fibrillation today, right? Maybe today we'll talk about rate control, and maybe tomorrow we'll talk about anticoagulation, right? 
And so I think as internists, we struggle a lot, to be honest, with spacing because our completeness gene gets in the way. Right. This actually reminds me of a nice tutorial by the great Dr. Jennifer Spicer of the MedEd TWAG team when she wrote about preparing for inpatient teaching. And Dr. Spicer made this exact point, that if you space out the learning pearls on the different topics that we can cover over an inpatient week of rounds, in doing so, rounds become this actually amazing, ongoing, spiraling discussion about different disease processes as you interleave education from, you know, patient to patient over, you know, the course of several days of taking care of them. Exactly. So my take-home point from this session here, Marty, is that there are lessons we can take from cognitive psychology to make our virtual teaching more effortful and therefore more effective for our learners. Right on. So next episode on deck is mentoring in the modern era, more than a traditional diet. This talk was led by Dr. Maria Wamsley of UCSF, Dr. Bernice Ruo from UC San Diego, and Dr. Shuba Ramani from Brigham and Women's Hospital. Man, I love the coast-to-coast expertise with this session. Too bad these guys have to listen to the hot takes from a couple of corn-fed Midwesterners like us, huh, Marty? Oh, boy, Tim. That's it. I'm, I'm officially a Midwesterner now, aren't I? Search your feelings, Marty. You've always been a Midwesterner. Oh, boy. Okay, so so I, I really enjoyed this talk. And as an early career faculty, I'm still not sure I know exactly what mentorships is supposed to look like. I mean, I mean, right now I see it as another regularly scheduled Zoom session where I try not to disappoint someone who I deeply admire. You know what I mean. <laughs> but, I, but I felt like this workshop really had a few tangible points, especially why I should consider peers and even my current learners in this quote-unquote mentorship network. This is in, in contrast to that traditional kind of hope-I-don't-let-you-down diet. Ugh. Oh, man. Yeah, that, that's, that's real. Okay, let's avoid the inevitable disappointment when your attending crush texts you, new phone, who dis? And uh, start with our peer mentors. <laughs> Find a peer mentor, there is a congruence. There is a social and intellectual congruence. We are all we have lived experiences that are similar and understand each other's challenges. Yeah, there is so much truth to that. I have this great group of colleagues at my institution, and we have a group text, and you know, we sort of meet ad hoc. The group definitely has the foundation of a peer mentoring group, but I think the next step would be to add in a little formality of that traditional mentoring relationship. Yeah, I mean, but I can see making that more formal kind of a tough needle to the thread there. Have you given any thought on how you're going to do that without sacrificing the collegiality that really makes it special? Yeah, I guess that is certainly the the tough part of this. You know, our group has somewhat regular meetings, but they're, you know, these fun, wandering conversations about whatever's going on. What the workshop presenters suggested was a mentorship meeting structure that I found fantastic. They call it the 5-10-30 rule, and it can be really applied to any mentorship gathering. They're sometimes called 5, 10, and 30 rule of meetings where you could spend of your hour, about five minutes, just checking in and seeing where things are at. Then secondly, talking for about 10 minutes on short-term goals, and then to spend the majority of the time, approximately 30 minutes, speaking about long-term goals and how to take steps to achieve those long-term goals. And then to spend the last 15 minutes wrapping up and clarifying kind of next steps and tasks and setting up time for the next meeting. The idea here is that you spend five minutes checking in early in the mentoring meeting, you limit discussion about short-term goals to about 10 minutes, and then spend 30 minutes on long-term goals and steps to achieve them. 
Okay, so I love the structure of this. And as it relates to our peer mentorship group, I sort of envision applying this as maybe like a once per person per year, we'll run through that 5, 10, 30. So maybe one out of our 12 meetings, we would focus on one person for this structure, while the other six to seven would be more of that, you know, free form yakking about politics and office gossip type hangout. (laughs) And the final point that the session presenters brought up, I felt was a little provocative, but it was worth sharing is that they suggested asking learners to serve as part of our mentorship network. You know, this would be especially important for you or I, whose really career path is one in in education. Who best to tell us or provide us support and give us feedback than our learners? They see us through a different perspective. And best of all, they're not trying to mold us in their image. Okay? They're not pushing us to seek certain goals. Wow, I actually love that idea, asking learners for very deliberative and specific mentoring feedback. And we spend so much time thinking about evaluation in the other direction. But think about it. They've seen us teach where we're showing the depth of our knowledge and really exposing our vulnerabilities to them, right? And we all ask for end-of-rotation feedback from our learners, but I'm not so sure that I've ever actually explained to my students why that type of feedback helps me, you know, like where it sits within the context of my broader goals as an educator. And I really like this. Yeah, exactly. And it's certainly something for us to consider as we move forward. So quickly summarizing the high yield pearls from this session, mentoring can and should exist in this relationship network, not necessarily just in that one-on-one traditional diet that we often see. I think we should purposely consider peers and juniors in these networks. And a nice framework for those meetings are that 5-10-30 model. Just a quick word from our sponsor. We all want to eat healthier, but let's be honest. Between our busy schedule and the endless prep and cleanup, it feels kind of out of our reach. You know, we often are aiming for better nutrition, but end up compromising for quick fixes that are anything but healthy. Now, imagine a different scenario. Picture a day where you're coming home to gourmet, nutritious meals that are ready in just two minutes. With Factors, that is possible. Factors delivers delicious, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals right to your door, ready to heat in just two minutes, giving you over 35 weekly options to choose from, from calorie smart to protein plus to keto. And don't forget, they have 60 plus add-ons for an extra boost from breakfast to midday bites. So you're not spending all your time and money in the hospital's cafeteria. So no prep, no mess, just real mouthwatering meals tailored to fit your schedule and dietary needs. With fact, you're not just saving time, but you're elevating your meal game without the hassle of cooking. Head to factormeals.com slash coriam50. Use the code coriam50 to get 50% off. That's the code coriam50 at factormeals.com slash coriam50. Okay, so the next session we wanted to highlight was the Clinical Updates in Medical Education. And this was led by Drs. Marianne Overland, Tyler Albert, and Paul Cornea of the University of Washington, Dr. Mega Garg of UCSF, and Dr. Mel Anderson of the University of Colorado. And Marty, this was a tour de literature of recent papers. And the session leaders made it a priority to address anti-racism and equity research within medical education. But the first study that really caught my attention was a randomized trial out of JHM looking at point-of-care ultrasound learning among IM trainees. And quick note here that POCUS is point-of-care ultrasound. And in full disclosure, Marty, I am a huge POCUS geek. You are a huge POCUS geek. I I totally knew you were going to talk about this paper. (laughs) But I don't know, man. I got to be honest. This paper wasn't exactly flattering to the uh, POCUS among us. The POCUS among (laughs) us. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) No, no. Thank you for that. 
No, I, I, I agree with you, but this study is just so timely, right? Because ultrasound tech is getting cheaper, sleeker, more portable, and the day may soon come when we can all afford to have that ultrasound probe just sitting in our pocket with us on rounds. But the question I think that this paper asks is, should we? You know, they looked at whether carrying around a handheld device in addition to a POCUS lecture series improved POCUS proficiency compared to a control group that just got the lecture series. And here's what they found. Despite having their own personal ultrasound devices, there was no difference in the frequency of conducting POCUS exams. Knowledge, as assessed via the multiple choice exam, also was not different between the groups. Although both showed substantial gains over their internship year. However, despite not actually being more competent with POCUS, residents randomized to personal ultrasound devices reported feeling more confident to perform specific maneuvers. They were much less likely to cite a lack of confidence as a barrier to performing POCUS, 17.6% in the personal ultrasound group versus 50% in the control group. I calculated a number needed to create false confidence of only three, which is not good. Ooh, man, as a POCUS educator, that number needed to create false confidence really hurts. Yeah, that that is tough. I mean, it sounds pretty much like classic Dunning-Kruger effect, right? The lack of skill accompanied by lack of awareness of our limitations. This can be a particularly dangerous combination in the clinical setting. Yeah. And I mean, this comes up in the POCUS literature all the time. And I talk about it with my learners frequently. It's, it's not only about whether you can get those good, high quality images, but also knowing how far you can interpret the information you have. Because when you think about it, it's a pretty dangerous setup if you're not aware of the limitations of the images you're, you're acquiring. You, uh, you, you doing okay, buddy? It's a bit of a, <laughs> it's a bit of a POCUS burn there. You know, I, I'd ask if you had any Vaseline to treat the wound, but I'm pretty sure you got goop lying around. Uh, no. <laughs> All right. Sorry. Sorry. This is uh, it's getting a little gross. Let's move on. Yeah. Yeah. Let's keep moving. Okay. So the session organizers were really transparent that they wanted to use their platform to elevate awareness of research that shows just how prevalent and pervasive racial and gender bias is, not just in our own institutions and promotion structure, but in the very fabric of the healthcare delivery system. Yeah, you know, so just as a side note, this is why SGIM is such an awesome organization. You know, the session organizers could have just run through OSCE studies and TBL papers, you know, those kind of traditional med ed uh, literature, but really promoting equity scholarship was a deliberate choice here. So, you know, what did they highlight in that education advocacy overlap area? Yeah, the first one that really stuck with me was a cross-sectional study from JAMA Network Open, which examined gender bias in clinical evaluations. The study raises very intriguing questions about why female residents' assessments they peak and plateau, while male residents' assessments continue to improve throughout all three years of residency. I think it's highly unlikely that there's some sort of countrywide gender-based difference in patient care quality that, to explain the differences in these scores. Women in traditionally male-dominated fields often have to carefully balance being likable with being authoritative. And female residents may be highly assessed for communal leadership styles in the R2 year when assessors are more likely to be critical of overconfidence in residents. However, as female residents grow into the R3 role and begin to display higher levels of independence, assertiveness, and autonomy, their professional roles and behaviors might not align with unconscious expectations of normative gender behaviors, resulting in lower scores on assessments. Yeah, man. I mean, that, that really did catch me off guard because this is an area for growth for me. I, I do try to be cognizant of the role that, you know, my unconscious biases have in the way that I evaluate learners. But but honestly, this was just a blind spot for me. I uh, I hadn't really even given thought 
to the way that, you know, subconscious expectations about the gender roles of my learners might be impacting the way that I evaluate them. And uh, I just have to be better, you know? I fully appreciate that. And I think I think we all have room for growth here. So, you know, thank you for, for raising this paper. And what other studies did you find compelling? Yeah, I think, you know, one more compelling piece of work from this session that I really wanted to highlight was a paper also from JAMA Network Open, which addresses the ubiquity of biased patient behavior that BIPOC, LGBTQ, and female trainees are just routinely exposed to. Um, this ranges from, you know, explicit racial epithets, role questioning, refusal of care, and all the way up to sexual harassment. The big takeaway here is that the annual incidence of residents experiencing biased patient behavior approaches 100%. Residents are more commonly bearing witness to this behavior than experiencing it directly. However, unsurprisingly, some groups experience specific types of patient behavior more than others. For example, 99% of Asian residents experience being confused with other Asian team members by a patient at least once in the past year. And basically all women experienced assumptions of non-physician status. The most commonly reported incidents overall are related to race and ethnicity. 45% of our Black and Latinx residents have experienced refusal of care and requests to change physicians over the past year. Oh, gosh. I mean, this is unbelievably, unfortunately, unsurprising. I mean, every single time I'm on service, I find myself addressing microaggressions based on gender or race or sexual identity. It's, uh, you know, I, I, I do see this. Yeah, and I think, you know, even more troubling is that many of the residents reported not responding to biased patient behavior in the moment or bringing it to the attention of the administration. And, you know, it's, it's no surprise why, you know, they're, they're concerned that they may not have support at the institutional level. They have these archaic nebulous reporting and accountability structures. And, you know, the trainees reasonably fear retaliation for speaking out. Gosh, I mean, so the big takeaway for these last couple of papers is that as a white guy in a position of leadership and power and, and frankly privilege that I need to be an active upstander instead of a passive bystander. And in preparation for this episode, you and I, we, we spoke about there's no question that fostering safe spaces is a work in progress for me and, and us. And studies like these really highlight the importance of, of this area of growth. Couldn't agree more. So this is a great place to move on to the next session that we wanted to highlight, anti-racism in medical education concrete actions to further social justice and racial equity. This session was presented by a really amazing group of educators on behalf of the SGIM Education Committee. They are Drs. Sarah Merriam, Rachel Benema, Daniel Jones, Kate Lupton, Ronnie Nadiwada, Adeti Puri, Laura Snydman, Carla Spagnoletti, and Aloha Ufumata. Man, it really must have been a heavy lift to distill down such an important topic and, and give it the justice and nuance that it deserves. Yeah, it it really was was difficult. Um, they crammed a lot into this hour, and it really was an amazing talk. I, I organized my take home points into kind of really compelling big picture ideas. These are things like addressing structural racism in our academic organizations and some educational policy considerations. The uh, session organizers mentioned, and then I'll review some smaller but immediate, you know, put into practice tomorrow type points. Oh, that sounds great. Okay, so let's start with the big picture stuff, Marty. What you got for me? Okay, so big picture points. First, my institution, like many others, really has tried to respond to the growing awareness of structural racism like in our community. The question becomes where to go from here. 
existing anti-racism curricula tend to focus more at an individual level on things like unconscious bias and cultural competency to address issues of diversity and inclusion. However, these frameworks have really been critiqued as oversimplifying culture, propagating stereotypes, and providing a very superficial understanding of the impact of race and identity, and certainly overlooking structural inequities and issues of privilege. There's no question that most of us can look at our own anti-racism curricula and just think about gaps and opportunities. One thing the presenters proposed was to actually create a new core competency around structural racism, you know, perhaps titling it, you know, something like mastering the effects of structural racism. Right. Okay. So, I mean, what better way to make real change happen than to hold med schools and residency programs accountable to learner progress in this area? And if we created a new core competency, it would really hold their feet to the fire to create more high-impact, durable education on structural racism. Exactly. And by the way, props to the internal medicine ACGME milestone updates from July 2021. These now include identification of personal bias as a skill within the interpersonal communication skills competency. This is a step short of creating an entire new core competency, but is certainly a step in the right direction. Okay, moving on to more immediate-term action items. So honestly, a learning point here for me was the interaction between microaggressions, which uh, for me, it's been spoken about a lot, and stereotype threat, which again, for me, was a new term. Microaggressions is something that we've mentioned before, but microaggressions can lead to stereotype threat. Stereotype threat refers to the risk of of confirming negative stereotypes about an individual's racial ethnic, gender, or cultural group. You might say that this is the internal corollary to microaggressions. Okay, I got to be honest. It's a little bit embarrassing for me to admit that I actually hadn't heard of stereotype threat before this talk, and it makes a ton of sense. I mean, if you're a third-year medical student on rounds, I can totally see how a microaggression from a patient could make an already nerve-wracking presentation even more anxiety-provoking and seem more high stakes because now you might feel like I can't mess up or else I'm going to prove that microaggression correct. That's absolutely terrible. A bit later in the talk, Dr. Ufamata also connected stereotype threat with the cognitive load required to code switch. If that's a new term for you, it's basically when people of color essentially change the way they speak and act at work or at school because they feel that just being themselves can lead to discrimination. Dr. Jones mentioned that President Barack Obama made an art form out of this, and really, it's a survival tactic. As you can imagine, code switching depletes cognitive resources. It takes a lot to change the way one might speak, behave, um, to make others feel comfortable. This can then impede performance and ultimately result in further isolation. At the same time that URIM faculty are experiencing isolation, they're also experiencing hypervisibility, both because they stand out physically and because our institutions try to showcase folks who are of URIM background in marketing and recruitment materials. One of the consequences of this hypervisibility is an intensification of the stereotype threat. Yeah, Marty, I really appreciate the learning point. And it's easier said than done, but I I feel like this is just a call to action for team leaders to create an inclusive environment where our trainees feel safe in their own identity and don't feel the need to code switch. I, I couldn't agree more, my man. Another concrete takeaway from the talk that I appreciated was around assessments. 
one of the things that happens when we're training is that so much of our grading and assessment is based on peer-to-peer comparison. And so this article by Tararani actually does a really fantastic job of bringing out that if we were to really focus on our individual learners, on coaching them, on focusing on patient care, on their growth, rather than the side-by-side comparison of learner to learner, that inherently would reduce some of the bias. Yeah, so I appreciated how Dr. Nadiwanda was really pushing us to avoid these side-by-side comparisons of learners in favor of a more holistic and really growth-centered approach. There's some kind of audit system that we build in to help make sure that it's actually an accurate assessment. How do we create more of that standardization so we're not falling back on our unconscious bias with word choice, right? And we're really looking at competency-based evaluation. Okay, so this is something that I can put into practice tomorrow. It's admittedly hard to avoid comparisons of learners because they're often rotating with us in pairs or in groups. But if we focus our assessments on the learner's patient care and the narrative assessment section of evaluations, that should help us to go ahead and combat our inherent biases as they creep up. Right. And by the way, the attending corollary to the learner assessments is probably the faculty annual review, which is what the session organizers talked about next. You know, Tim, as a fellow... You probably haven't gotten a chance to participate in one of these annual review gems, but let me tell you, there are few things more pleasant than spending over 10 hours reviewing a year's worth of Outlook calendars and email threads to figure out, you know, how many residents were at that Zoom talk you gave last September? You know, those kind of things. Oh, my God. Okay, so this is like (laughs) the Valhalla of attendinghood that I've been working for two decades to achieve, huh? You know that that scene in Billy Madison when Adam Sandler grabs the kid by his face and says, stay here as long <laughs> as you can. But, but anyway, the presenters really had a cool idea about how our divisions might actually foster recognition of anti-racism work in our annual reviews or our fac- faculty assessments. We also recommend that institutions broadly apply anti-racist indicators and benchmarks um, and include those in annual assessment of progress for all faculty. Considerations could include identifying an objective measurement for anti-racism and equity work, as we, were, as we previously discussed, or creating a narrative section on the CV that asks faculty to um, elaborate on their own contribution to diversity, making it an expectation that all faculty, not just URIM faculty, but all faculty will reflect on their own contributions and complete this section as part of their um, yearly review and as part of their advancement. Right on, Tim. I couldn't agree more. I think that's a perfect place to, to end the session. That about wraps up our SGIM 2020 meeting, Med Ed Edition. No, I don't want it to end. (laughs) (laughs) So um, look out for two other episodes from Core IM reviewing other content from these awesome SGIM talks. Yeah, that's right. And if you found this episode helpful, please share it with your team and colleagues and give it a rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you use. It really does help people to find us. And a huge thanks to our Core IM team for audio editing and Priyal Patel for the accompanying graphic, which is fantastic. Remember that opinions expressed are our own and do not represent the opinions of any affiliate institutions. Go Badgers. (laughs) There you go. Right on, everybody. See you next time. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. 
Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.